It feels to me that you and I are living in something of what I might call an increasingly fly-by era. Can you imagine what I might mean by that, a fly-by era? It just feels like the pace and the practices of modern life so often leave us kind of flying by each other, you know? Uh, there's, just, there's just so much movement in life today. We exchange pleasantries in the hall. We wave at one another as we pass by. We promise to get together sometime, though that time sometimes is never to come. We give a quick like or a thumbs up or a heart on social media. We make a brief comment, all the while in many instances feeling this inner anxiety that if we said more, it might draw us into conversations and deeper kinds of interactions than we were really ready for. It's not because we're bad people. It's not because we're hard-hearted people, it's just that we've got so much going on in our lives. We have so many plates spinning, so many things to do, places to go, uh, so many tasks to take care of, kids to chase, as I'm sure you understand, that it's hard not to get accustomed to this passing by each other. It's only natural, I think, to start looking for limited liability engagements, for uh, bullet point information, for money back guarantees, for not into deep connections with activities and with people. We need fast food, quick connections. We're all up for involvement. We're not so sure about commitment. Or we need to think about that. We need to get back to you on that. Can you relate to this? kind of fly-by existence. There's an old joke that's used to illustrate the difference between being involved and being committed. The joke goes that when somebody puts a ham and eggs breakfast in front of you, you can see that the chicken was clearly involved, but the pig was committed. And, and, and really, if there's one headline for the message that I want to share with you today, it is that we are more fulfilled, in fact, I would dare to say most fulfilled, not by fly-by involvements, but, but at the table of deep commitments. At the table of deep commitments. That's where we find what feeds us and helps us to flourish most. I invite you to think about that idea when you gather at some table later this week, perhaps, for a Thanksgiving celebration of some kind. Chances are that you will see that, that the kind cook was clearly involved, but it was the turkey that was committed. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek here, but seriously, think of what the sacrifice of that creature has done for people over the years. The fact that that bird didn't just fly by but laid down its life makes a practical difference. It feeds people. In fact, often leading, leaving them with leftovers for several days. It, it slows people down. And I'm not just talking about the, the tryptophan chemical that makes us sleepy after we eat a turkey. No, the very presence of that big bird, for those who observe that tradition, uh, slows down the meal, 
and the conversation. The turkey creates an occasion for lingering fellowship with family and friends. It becomes the context where the sort of deeper conversations and enduring commitments that, 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 that happen at banquet tables might just spring up. So alongside of all of the other reasons for gratitude that you might talk about if you do go to a Thanksgiving table this week, I want to encourage you to give thanks this year for the turkey's gift. I've called the message today the turkey's gift. Because that gift reminds us that we are fulfilled not so much by the flyby involvements of life, but at the table of deep commitments, even sacrifices. It strikes me as I was reading through Exodus chapter 24, the text for our study today, that this is also something of the message of the Bible too. Uh, the story of Exodus 24 is really a story about the glory of, of deep commitments. As you may recall, if you were part of our conversation last week from the book of Exodus, Moses has just finished laying out for the children of Israel. They're on their journey, by the way, those of us joining you. On, they've come out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They've made their way through the Arabian Desert. They're now at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there in that place, God is preparing them for the ongoing journey ahead when they will cross the, the uh, River Jordan and into the land of promise. But God is shaping their hearts at Mount Sinai in a critical way. And as we described last week, he's laid out laws for them, a set of precepts designed to help their lives really flourish and to protect the vulnerable amongst them against abuse. And maybe most important of all, to cultivate their connection to him. So chapter 24 opens up with God inviting his servant Moses, the leader of the Jewish people, and a select guest list of other people, he invites them to climb up Mount Sinai for what will eventually culminate in a, a Thanksgiving meal of sorts. The text says, and I quote, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, your brother, and Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's oldest two sons, by the way, in fact, if you're looking for great baby names, there's two good ones, Nadab and Abihu. Um, and 70 of the elders of Israel, they're also invited to this party, God says. And then God speaks to the whole crowd of Israel. He says, you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him yet. One of the great differences between this moment in history is that God is still at a little bit of a distance and with the coming of Jesus one day will invite all people. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, invite them in to be in relationship with me. And, and, and basically God is saying here, um, you all stay out there in the living room. Moses, come on into the kitchen. We have something to, to talk about. Now, in between this very special invitation that he issues in, in Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2, 
And the meal that follows later on in verses 9 through 11, uh, we're told that Moses spends some time at the foot of Mount Sinai preparing himself and the children of Israel for an encounter with God. On a much lesser scale, I think of, of, of what went on this week of the year in my family's life. Uh, because our family tradition was to go and see my grandparents at Thanksgiving. And my grand, I lived in New York. My grandparents lived out in Long Island and then later on in a town called Pound Ridge. And it took a bit of a drive to get to that place. And my parents always felt like they needed to get the kids ready. There were four of us at this time, one, uh, three boys and one very tough girl. And, uh, and, and my parents would be very careful to make sure we were well bathed and, and we were dressed up for the occasion, and that we had been recently reminded that my grandparents would insist on good manners. And they wanted us to be ready for this encounter with my grandparents. And so they were training us and preparing us for that. I don't know if that pattern is familiar to any of your families, uh, but it is an appropriate one that when you're coming into the presence of someone wiser, more experienced, Uh, that there's a certain amount of reverence and preparation that goes on. So this is kind of what we're seeing going on here. Moses is getting them ready. He's the head of the Hebrew household. They're going to meet someone even greater, the greatest one of all, and some preparation is necessary. So the first thing that Moses does is share with the Hebrew family, the Israelite people, the the plan that God has given him for, for this visit uh, in effect, he's telling them who's going who's to ride in the, car, in the front car and who's going to stay behind. And, and he says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. In other words, got it, Moses. We understand what God's looking for, and we're going to do that. And and. We're told that Moses wrote down everything that the Lord had said to him, uh, perhaps so that he himself wouldn't forget. Then, the scripture says, Moses got up early the next morning. Think of the preparation some families make. Uh, Some of the moms in houses will be up very early Thanksgiving morning, uh, putting the bird in or making some special dish, getting ready for the event. So Moses gets up very early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And, and an altar was like a, a big table uh, in those days. And, and he set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the different branches of the Hebrew family, the 12 tribes. It's sort of like a cross, it sounds like, between Stonehenge and, and a family dinner table where you're, you're bringing in chairs to make sure everybody is represented around the table. That's kind of the image. But, but what Moses is doing most of all is he's constructing a place of sacrifice. That table is going to be a place in, in, in which something will be sacrificed. And, and that sacrifice will, will represent the commitment of all 12 tribes of Israel to honoring and serving God, and, it, and that sacrifice will prepare them, as I'll say in a minute, to encounter God. Then, we're told, 
Moses sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Something about sacrifice was needed to create fellowship, and we'll hear more about that in just a moment. Now, I think there, this, this kind of, of scriptural storyline is kind of confusing to the modern mind. In fact, it can actually seem somewhat offensive to the modern mind. This idea of offering animals, sacrificing animals to build fellowship with God kind of sounds weird or maybe even pagan in a way. But if you really think about it, we still do things like this. Not too long ago, for example, Amy and I hosted uh, some friends for dinner. And these were some folks that we've traveled long distance through life with. And we decided that we would barbecue a beef tenderloin for them. Uh, and, and, and the price of that bull was not small, even though I got it from Costco. It was pricey. It was expensive to buy this big, massive uh, hunk of meat for, for these guests. And, and we blanched a little bit when we saw the price of it. But when we sort of compared that cost to the value that we feel for the fellowship that we have with this particular group of people, it, it, we thought, man, that's, that's a price worth paying. That's a price worth paying. And I think that most of us uh, make sacrifices for fellowship with the people that we love. You know, you think at Christmas time of how much expenditure and sacrifice is required to create those environments or to express in, in tangible ways with gifts the care and, and concern that we have for these loved ones in our lives. Um, so what are some of the sacrifices you have made over the years for the people in your life? What are some of the sacrifices you've made to express your devotion to God? And, and maybe is there something more that you would want to do to express your commitment to the people and to the source of all life? The text goes on and says that then Moses took half of the blood that came from the sacrifice of these bulls and put it in bowls. We're going to learn in a moment what he did with that. And the other half of the blood he splashed against the altar. He threw this blood against the, this table. Now that, again, sounds like gruesome and, and, and weird and like, well, what's that all about? Well, the symbolism here is that Moses is consecrating the altar. He's, um, he's declaring the altar a very special thing and a very special place by washing it with the, with the symbol or with a representation of the most valuable thing in the world, or in our experience anyway, which is life. Blood is life. And so he's giving, in a sense, to God and to this altar, he's the, the, sort of the, this, this image of life. It, today, we might um, christen the thing with champagne, or we might paint it with gold and, and to symbol that this is a very holy and special uh, place. We would, we would wash it in some other way, perhaps. 
And then before doing the next and most important part of the ritual of commitment that Moses is enacting here, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. So the people of Israel are all gathered around. They see this kind of now, this, the, the bulls have been sacrificed, the, the altar is covered with, uh, the, with, with blood, and then he reads the book of the covenant to the people. Now the book of the covenant is shorthand for the instructions that Moses had received from God about the kind of relationship God sought with his people. In fact, it's, if you read Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, all the way through Exodus chapter 23, verse 33, you're getting all the instructions that, which God describes what he is promising to do for the people and what it is that he's asking from the people. And, um, and, and he doesn't include in the book of the covenant at this point yet the Ten Commandments, but those are about to, to be given um, in, in a little further along in the story. Uh, so for the second time, the people responded, we will do everything the Lord has said and we will obey. We'll do all the stuff that God asked for in the covenant. Uh, we will obey that. Now, I want to press pause here and just pause the story. And, and I want to just recognize a reality in the room. Some of us in this room were raised in a family or in a religious tradition that was highly legalistic. And by that, what I mean is that we were raised with a lot of rules and a lot of obligations and a lot of burdens and a lot of thou shalts uh, in our lives. And, and we may have experienced some great blessing in those circles, so I'm not running those circles down. But, but for some people who get raised in environments like that, when they come to a passage in the Scripture where it's all, there's all this conversation about God's laws and about obeying, it just triggers something. It just it hooks us. It brings up some emotional... Uh, memory in us of, of when we felt just crushed and unable to really satisfy the demands of, of the ones that were laying the expectations upon us. And we, we may have felt shamed because we just couldn't live up to those expectations. And so when we read about law and obedience in the Bible, you know, that stuff is there with us. We're trying to feel good about what we're reading, but it's hard for us to feel good about it. I don't know if that resonates with any of your experience in life. Um, that's not how the Hebrew people saw it, at least at this particular moment. Um, standing there at that great stone altar table, the 12 tribes of Israel actually think they're entering into a really good deal. They are trading the fly-by involvements that they've had with all of the pagan gods of their time who all have rules, who all have laws, who all have heavy expectations. And they're trading those flyby involvements for one commitment, for one deep commitment to the God of Israel. And, and, and this God has already shown them such blessing. He's gotten them out of slavery. He's carried them through the land. He's provided for them in multiple kinds of ways. And he's going to take them 
to a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and, and so they are believing in this moment that if they live by his requirements, that, that it's not going to be a punishing, difficult, overburdened kind of thing. It's going to lead to even greater flourishing because they trust the heart of this God, at least at this moment. They are, in effect, exchanging the anxiety of all these dating involvements with other gods, and they're, and they're choosing marriage to the one God. They, they, they're entering into what the Bible calls a covenant. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the term covenant. Now, once upon a time, that word covenant was well understood by the majority of people living in a lot of parts of the world. But, but I want to just revive our appreciation for what that word covenant really means by comparing it to another word that we use a lot these days, and that's the word contract. What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Well, the distinction is really, really important. This is the why of why I think it's helpful that, to listen to this next part of the message, uh, because um, there's, all, there's, there's a lot of pressure and, and cultural influence in our day that, that wants to turn us into what I would call contract players instead of covenant people. So let me paint for you, again, the distinction between these two, uh, these two ways of being. A contract is a common legal document. We make them in business all the time. Uh, we make uh, commitments like this that establish and structure clear relationships. Contracts involve a statement of you do this and I'll do that. Uh, contracts are regulated ultimately by the state. That is to say that if you're not doing what you signed up for in the contract document, I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to take you to the state to, to hold you accountable for not doing what you said in the document, or you could do that with me. To some extent, contracts are, are based upon mistrust between two parties. The fear that I might enter into some kind of arrangement with you and you won't hold up your end of the bargain, so we need a document that makes it really clear what each person is supposed to do. Contracts are often embedded with all kinds of opt-out clauses and termination uh, clauses just in case the other side doesn't live up to the bargain. They contain fences to limit my risk and to limit my liability in this whole deal. Um, a contract uh, also demands that, that satisfaction will come to the ones involved in this through mutual benefit as defined in the document. I grew up in a lawyer's house. Uh, we talked a lot about contracts. There's nothing wrong with a good contract. I'm not trying to run contracts down. But a contract is not the same as a covenant. A covenant is something different. A, a, a covenant is sacred as, rather than common. Contracts, common, covenants, sacred or special. We don't make covenants very often. Um, we don't because they're deeper commitments and we just couldn't sustain that many of them. 
Uh, covenants are also moral versus legal agreements. Uh, a legal agreement is something I entered into trusting that the law will enforce it. A moral agreement is something I enter into because I trust your character. It depends on the character of the other person, not the law. Um, basically, the covenant of marriage is, a, is maybe one of the most substantive, easy to, uh, to remember examples. Uh, we enter into the covenant not trusting in the marriage license. Like when Amy and I are having challenges in our marital relationship, she doesn't pull out the license. Right? She appeals to my character. And, and, and I to hers. Because we've made a moral agreement when we made those vows. You know, it's the, it's the willingness to, to, to stick together for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. In the last service, I looked across the, the, the sanctuary and I saw, I saw the face of, of, of a man whose, whose wife I had the privilege of doing the funeral service for yesterday, right here, right? And he, and he had lost his first wife to cancer, and he, and he married his, his second wife, a wonderful person in this church's life, and she came down with cancer. If they'd had a contract... He could have said, oh, I'm not signing up for this. I, I didn't sign up for this. I've already been through this once. I'm not doing this again. But he had a covenant. And so her, her illness actually called up more of his character. And I, and I was awestruck as I watched him love her and care for her and nurture her and stay faithful to her all the way to the close. Oh, when somebody's living a covenant, it's one of the most beautiful things. One of the most beautiful things of all. Covenants are based on the choice both sides make to trust the other person deeply. Remember contracts? I don't really trust you, so we need all these, these details. Covenants, I trust you deeply. They represent two parties' angles of approach in life. They're, they're statements that... That, that though others might let me down, though the other party uh, maybe has let me down, I have faith in who you are. That we'll get through it. We'll figure it out. Rather than being filled with all kinds of escape clauses or termination arrangements, covenants are intended to be highly enduring because good character is highly enduring. And unlike a contract, the failure of the other side at times to live up to their commitment does not make the arrangement null and void. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make it null and void. Because each side, when they enter into a covenant, pledges to do their best no matter what the other person's doing. How many times in my marriage did we survive because Amy just kept doing her best? When I, you know, when I was too wrapped up in something else. And then there were times when it went the other way. So covenants involve a pledge to fulfill our side unilaterally. And when I make a covenant, I'm embracing an, uh, not a limited liability, but an, in a sense an unlimited opportunity 
to demonstrate my capacity for commitment, to keep growing in my character, to let the other side make mistakes or let me down, and I will keep learning, and, and then I will invite them to learn, and I will pray that they renew their character and their commitment to me. Contracts aim at satisfying both of us through mutual benefits. You know, if we keep both doing things that make each other happy, we'll stay in this. But covenants are, are, seek the joy that comes only through mutual sacrifice. Contracts are about if, covenants are about nevertheless. Are you with me? You see the difference between these two ways of life? So let me just try and summarize this, because I know this is a lot to take in. In a world where people are permeated, and our, and our cultures and societies are permeated by sin and selfishness, contracts are absolutely necessary to minimize the spread of, of injustice and, and evil. So contracts are important. But it is through the making and keeping of covenants that we don't just sort of limit the downside of life. It's through the making of covenants that we capture the upside potential of life. Because it's in covenants that the life, the, the kind of life we call the kingdom of God gets expressed most beautifully. And God makes covenants and, and encourages covenants and invites us into a covenant with him because he knows that a covenant is the context where human beings are most challenged to behave more and more like him and experience the thriving that comes from that. I just started watching this weekend this um, new series, uh, or maybe it's an old series now, on Apple TV called Swagger. And it's the story of a, of a, of a 14-year-old boy who's an amazing basketball player. And... Uh, but whose father left him, whose father did not keep the covenant. And he comes under the influence of a coach who's utterly for him. And, and, and you watch the flourishing of this kid uh, under the influence of that other coach who's made that covenant. Um, where are the covenants in your life? Have you made a covenant with God? I will be yours. I will be your follower, Lord. Have you answered his desire for that? He wants that covenant with you. How's the, the marriage covenant going for some of you? Has it slipped into, have you started becoming a contract player where you're kind of thinking about, I'm not giving that because you're not giving that. Is, is this a place in your life where you need to recapture what it means to live according to a covenant? What about the covenant of your family life and the commitment you have to the other people in your family in spite of their imperfections and inconsistencies? What about your citizenship in this constitutional republic, which is also a covenant that, that we pledge as individual citizens to keep working for the well-being, for the common good of, of all people, not just for our little slice, our little demographic. Here's the gut check question for, for us. Where may I have slipped into being more of a contract player where God calls me to be a covenant person? 
Moses reminds the 12 tribes of Israel that God has invited them into a special covenant relationship with himself. I will bless you, says God. I will bless you. I will make you a light to the nations. I will give you a promised land. I will take care of you. And I want you to live out these commandments. The people have said, yes, we'll do that. Moses then took the blood of the fellowship offering from the bowls that I described earlier. The first blood had gone onto the altar. This one now he takes. And the Bible says he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Wow, this is kind of, again, one of those weird things. Like, you know, can you imagine you're sitting in the front row and I suddenly pull out a bowl of blood and splatter it all over you? But I took out some water and splattered it all over her. Because I was baptizing her. I was letting her be washed with this symbol of the power of God, the cleansing power of God. And the blood of the covenant in this story is like that. It's an image of the cleansing power of God. It signifies the atoning sacrifice that is needed for the forgiveness and the washing away of sin. It's God, remember this, is, this happened 3,500 years ago. God is speaking to a much more primitive people than we have today. And he's trying to make vivid for people, touchable and, and, and understandable, what the cost of sin is in our lives, how badly we need to have sin addressed in our lives. And blood is like about the most vivid symbol you can get for that. He's trying to give a people a sense of, of, of the weight of sin. So the blood sacrifice system that we see in this particular story and lots of other places in the Old Testament is God's way of helping people get seriously the cost of sin. But it was also preparing future generations, and I include you and me in this, to understand how freedom from sin will ultimately be won. You see, neither Moses nor the Israelites nor you and I can approach a truly holy God without some life paying the price for sin. Without, without something that, that, that counterbalances the weight of sin. And paying for the price of the sin, not just of the Israelite people at this moment, but of the entire world, of all nations, is going to take the blood of a life even greater than the world. It's going to take a sacrifice so huge that human beings don't have it in them to supply it. God will supply it. He will lay himself down. He will make the once and for all sacrifice. And Jesus will say, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. So God, God makes the sacrifice here. 
he calls Israel to reproduce it in the altar, on this altar as a pointer towards the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. But his ambition is, is bigger than this. God's ambition is not just that, you know, that, that sin be paid for. God's ambition is, is that our life-giving communion with him gets restored. He wants to establish an intimate relationship between people and their creator that, that, that will become the font of, of many other blessings in their life. And, and, and the symbol uh, of that shared life with him that works most beautifully and helpfully and understood universally is the image of a banquet table. Like a Thanksgiving table, like a feasting table, like a, a marriage supper table, which is why 21 times in the New Testament we see Jesus sitting at tables and teaching about the love and the nature of God. And so in Exodus 24, we see Moses and his closest compatriots climbing up the mountain, and they come into the visible presence of God. And the text says, and I quote, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. They saw the wondrous holy God in some form that they don't supply here. Because at this point, the account dissolves into the sort of language that we find in the book of Ezekiel or the book of Revelation, the sort of poetry and, and analogy that human beings always use to describe something so transcendent, so magnificent, so mind and category blowing that it's actually indescribable, except in the language of, of poetry. And this is what it reads. Under God's feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli. Now that's not an Italian food dish. <laughs> lapis lazuli was a, was a gemstone, the strongest and most beautiful, shining, precious stone known in the ancient times. And we're told that, 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 that under him, his feet, was the mo this most beautiful kind of stone, as bright blue as the sky. In other words, we're being given this image that they were meeting a being of crystal clear purity, purity and radiant beauty and glorious shining power. And for a human being to enter into the presence of an entity like this, of such holiness, that should under normal conditions be the end of life. But it was instead, in this moment, the beginning for Israel. Because they were covered in the blood of the covenant, they could enter into his presence. And the text says God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. On the contrary, they saw God, the Bible says, and they did what? They ate and drank. They had table fellowship with him. Jesus once said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I want fellowship with you, says God.
I want to do life with you. I want an ongoing connection with you. Because you don't just eat once a year. You don't just eat on Sundays. It's an everyday thing that God is shooting for with all of us. So we're running out of time. I, I know I've kept you a long time here today. Let me just summarize what happens next. Moses eventually gets invited to go further into the kitchen with God. He, God takes him up higher on Mount Sinai. He has some kind of encounter that we don't know fully about, but we know he emerges from this shining cloud, and in his arms are tablets of stone on which are written what we call the Ten Commandments, the top ten that I talked about two weeks ago. While Moses is gone, the children of Israel start to lose uh, a remembrance of what they were being called to do on their side of the covenant, and they start going back in the wrong direction towards involvement with worshiping and serving idols. This is the, how it is so often for us. God out of sight, God out of mind, and our God becomes anything. When people lose a vision of God, they don't, they don't become atheists. They start to worship anything. They start worshiping celebrity and fame and money and a sports team. Um, and this is what happens with Israel. More on that next week. But let me ask you this in closing. Is there another story you've heard that is anything like this story I've been telling you today? And I think we've even got a chart that can help with this. Moses once prophesied, the Lord your God is going to raise up another prophet like me. Could the parallels between this Moses story and Israel story and somebody else's story we've read about be a pointer aimed at helping us take that other person's story more seriously? Is it possible that God orchestrated the whole story of Israel in the Old Testament to give us the categories that would help us know how to interpret the story of Jesus. To recognize him as the Holy One who's come to restore our fellowship, to pour out his life's blood, to help set us free, to lead us toward the promised land. In other words, could human problems across the ages actually have the same solution. The restoration of communion, fellowship with God. I suspect that, but this I know for sure. There's a table out there in your week ahead. There's a table where you're gonna have a chance to talk about and to give thanks for the beauty and the impact of those who have sacrificed for you, people who didn't live a fly-by light, but who made a deep, deep commitment to you to set you up in some way in life, who were faithful to you even when you maybe forgot to be. Learn from those people. Listen to those people. Become one of those people. Ask for God's help to become one of those people. And then I want to invite you to join me next Sunday as we finish out Part 12, the final chapter in our series 
on Exodus. I've entitled next week's message, The Tabernacle, where God makes his dwelling. And I promise you that this final installment will be nothing short of, what's that word for describing the amazing way God works in our lives? So, nothing short of wild. Please pray with me. We marvel at your providence, God. The wonder of what you've done in history, of how you've sought to make yourself known. Can it be, Lord God, that you would do all this to reach us? Can it be? Help us, Lord, to respond and to enter as only we can into the covenantal life you long for us to live. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.